2 Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back a captive, a young girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten shekels of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore consider and and see, how does he seek a quarrel with me? So it was when Elijah the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes and had, that he had sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went, on, went with his horses and chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be as restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was furious. And he went and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpah, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came to him and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and he dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God and with all his aids, and he came and he stood before him and he said, indeed, now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. So Naaman said, Then if, if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to, to other gods, but to the Lord only. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When your master goes into the temple of Rimmon, uh, to worship there, and he leans uh, on my hand uh, to, 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 that I bow down to the temple of Rimmon. When I bow down to the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, go in peace, and so he departed from him a short distance. Now to understand what's going on in the story, especially to see how it's going to apply to us, there's a couple, I guess you might say, cultural things you need to understand. The first one is that in the, in the uh, ancient Near East, that people groups would identify their gods with their location. So, in other words, when they talked about the God of Israel, 
though, though uh, in, in a biblical sense that was referring to the God of a people, uh, they would hear that as a God of the, of the land where Israel dwells. So when they talk about the God of Syria, they were thinking in their mind in the ancient Near East, the God who dwells in the land where the Syrians dwell. And that's important to understand because it really feeds into what's going on here in the story. The other thing to understand is that throughout all Scripture, leprosy, though it's dealt with as it is a factual disease, or actually, to be honest, leprosy is a way that describes many skin diseases in Scripture, but leprosy in Scripture is always used as a type of sin. It typifies sin. So the kind of disease there is meant to give us a picture of what sin is, what sin does, and how sin gets removed. So keep those two things in mind as we as we do this, as we go through this. Now, we read in verse 1, speaking of this man, Naaman, his name means pleasant, it's a very common name, and he's a man who's quite successful. He's the head commander of the army of Syria, and Syria was one of the, the world's superpowers in that area at that time. He was also seen as a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. So, the one who, who called the shots for that area, the one who was the, in charge of the superpower, saw this man as honorable. And that's interesting because the word honorable means that he can walk with his head held high. He was an incredibly successful man. When it says he was a great man of valor, it means he was a great warrior, but also it means he was very wealthy. So this man was very, very successful. And yet his success couldn't keep him from getting leprosy. And it's interesting because obviously there's a contrast between this man, Laman, and who we read about in verse 2 because it tells us that the Syrians, when they had gone into Israel on these raids, now you have to understand as well that Syria and Israel are not partners here. They're not allies. This is a time of their history where uh, Israel's in a, in a downward spiral and Syria's kind of in an upward uh, is going forward. And it's interesting too that the author who, who records this tells us gives credit to the God of Israel for allowing Syria to be over them. But it's a situation where these guys were not friends or allies. And so th th this is a guy who, in a sense, is part of the enemies of Israel. And so because of that, when they would go on raids, they would bring back human slaves. And they brought back this young girl who became a servant to Naaman's wife. And here they are in their home life. It's a real difficult situation, I'm sure, for this girl. You can imagine how you would feel if one of your daughters was stolen and, and made a slave. You can imagine if you were a little girl being pulled into slavery and had to be a maid somewhere. A pretty traumatic experience. But here she is in this traumatic experience, and she sees her master who has this skin disease, and she has compassion on him. And she says, man, if, if only you knew the prophet, because this guy does real miracles. God uses this guy to do things that can't be explained naturally. There's some radical stuff going on, and she has compassion for him. And what's amazing is that here's Naaman. He has all this success. It can't keep him from this leprosy. But here's this servant girl, kind of the direct opposite socially, and, and she's the one who knows where the cure is going to come from. And I think it's also interesting here that in a very difficult time of her life is when she's able to testify of the goodness of the God of Israel and the goodness of his prophet. And kind of as a side note, this is always what seems to be the case, that often we have the most credibility in talking about the goodness of our God when we are suffering. 
We think we have more credibility when things are going good. We can say, man, God's so good and He's blessed me, and we should give God credit when He blesses us. Don't get me wrong. But really, it's when we're suffering and we still say, God is so good, and we encourage other people to trust Him. I mean, think about it. She's a slave telling her master, look, I know you stole me, and I'm a slave. I'm away from my family, but I just got to tell you, my God is so good, and if you would go to the man who speaks His word, He would do great things for you. That's a great witness. And so what happens is, of course, Naaman tells his master, the king of Syria, this, and the king of Syria says, okay, no problem, I'll write you a letter meant to be a bit intimidating and make sure that the king of Israel does what you want to do. And of course, just to kind of sweeten the deal, what does Naaman do? Naaman brings gobs of money. Now, I have to say, when it mentions here 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold, I was trying to figure out what this would be in modern days. And I have to tell you that the figures were so high, I thought, did I get this right? Because if you were to put a modern value on that much silver and that much gold, it would be in the hundreds of thousands of pounds. We're, talking, we're not just talking about like a nice present or a gold ring. We're talking about some serious bank. We're talking about some serious money that he's bringing. And what you see happening here is he has this problem of leprosy. Even though he's successful, he hears about maybe there's a way he can do it. And he's thinking in his mind, I'm going to purchase this cure. I'm going to use my influence, my power, both politically and financially, to make sure this takes place. And so he does that. Now, what's interesting is when the king of Israel hears about this, when he finds out that there's this letter sent, he tears his clothes. And that's a, a symbol. It can be a symbol of repentance, but it also can be a symbol of fear or mourning, like, oh, no, now I'm going to die. And he's thinking there's got to be something going on here. There's no way that this pagan really wants to, really can expect me to do anything that can help him. There's no way that can be possible. And so he feels threatened by this command for a cure. Now, again, this is kind of a side note, but I find it interesting that often that happens with us too uh, as Jesus followers, isn't it? Because we sort of feel marginalized at times by the culture, we get very suspicious of the culture. So that when people challenge us on something which we should be thinking, hey, a chance to talk about how good Jesus is, we go, this is a threat. And we get freaked out. This is kind of what Israel, the, the king of Israel is doing. He's going, oh no, this is a threat. This is a threat. Now to be fair to him, he, he had reason to think it could be a threat. But actually God had something in mind. Now in sharing all this, don't forget that, that one of the things that we do see about leprosy in Scripture is it typifies sin. An interesting thing here is that in this story, though only one person has sin, or has leprosy, I should say, sorry, excuse me, has, only has leprosy, we know that all in the story and all of us have sin. Look what the Scripture says in the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul talking about it's not just non-religious people that have sin or, or wrong religious people that have sin. Here's what he says, Romans 3, verses 9 and verse 23. He says, are we better than they? In other words, are believers better than unbelievers? Not at all. For we, all, uh, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this should be one of the most obvious things to us because all of us look at this world and think something's not right. We look around at the world, the world system, the way things are, and we think something isn't right. There's a brokenness to this world. And we might disagree on how we would identify that brokenness, but we'd all say there's brokenness there. And the Bible quantifies that brokenness with one small three-letter word, sin. Falling short of who God is and what God wants for His creation. 
sin. Now, the interesting thing about this as well is that this is not just a principle. It's a practical reality in our lives. Jesus speaks into this. He says this in John chapter 8. Jesus said to these religious people he was talking to who thought that they were, weren't sinning, they thought that they were good enough by their own deeds. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And Jesus was trying to proclaim to these religious people that, look, all of us, he didn't, but all of you have sin. And you're not going to free yourself up from that because if you've sinned, you're a slave to sin. And it's only if a son sets you free that you can be free. And I am the son of God. And my death and resurrection will set you free. Now, I share all this because as we're talking about this story, it's important to recognize that this is really probably what the author is trying to bring out. This, this is not just the reality that God healed a man supernaturally, though this, we believe this actually happened, but this reality that leprosy is something that, well, sin is something that really, really only God can deal with. There's this problem that, you know what, no matter how successful we are, we can't rid ourselves from sin. No matter how much power, political or financial power influence we get, we cannot rid ourselves of sin, either individually or corporately in this world. We just can't do it. We can't do it. And you can understand, too, the pressure the king of Israel might have felt like, who am I? I'm not God. I can't kill and make alive. I can't resurrect anybody. It would take only God, who alone can resurrect somebody, to to be able to deal with a problem like this. That's exactly the message of the Scripture. We fast forward to the New Testament, that's exactly what we see Jesus being the answer, the one who, say, he laid down his life and he brought it back up again. He allowed himself to be killed to pay for our sins and he resurrected three days later. He has the power to deal with leprosy. He has the power to deal with sin. So what happens is, of course, verse 8, Elijah, the man of God, he's a prophet, one who speaks what God wants to be said. This man, Elijah, he says, you know what, let the guy come to me. He'll see there's a prophet in Israel. He'll see that the God of Israel really has someone who speaks on his behalf. He's real. Now, what he does, though, is he doesn't meet with him, does he? The picture is Naaman goes to his house, to the door of Elijah's house, and Elijah doesn't even answer the door. He sends one of his messengers to the door and says, oh, yeah, yeah, you're, you're, the, you're that Naaman guy. Okay, here's the deal. Go to the Jordan, dip yourself seven times, you'll be clean. God bless you. Click. That's it. I mean, it's, it's like this. Imagine if, if there was a note sent to me from the Queen of England saying, you know, I would like to, to the Queen request your presence, Her Majesty request your presence to talk to her about the Jesus of the Bible. And I'm like, um, uh, Garrett, will you go? I'm too busy. That's kind of what's happening here. And so what happens is he sends a messenger to do this, and of course, Naaman's furious. He's like, wait a second, I, I've brought forth good gifts. I've had a successful life. I'm coming to you for help. I surely at least merit an audience. You should at least give me some face-to-face time here. Come on. I've earned at least that much. That's his mindset. Now, I don't know if that sounds familiar to, to you, but it does to me. Because not only have I had that same mindset, but I meet lots of people who have that mindset. Man, if there's a God, I'm a good person. He should show himself to me. 
He should make it clear that I am who he, uh, or he is who he says he is. I don't know about you, but uh, I, I, before I became a Christian, I really wanted to know if God was real. And I thought, man, if God's real, why doesn't he just make it obvious? Why doesn't God just come down and show us? And then guess what? I heard about Jesus. Because the Bible teaches that that's exactly what happened. That Jesus is God's Son clothed in human flesh. God the Son clothed in human flesh. So that Jesus, when he walked this earth and lived completely sinless, remember when they crucified him, they could accuse him of no crime except claiming he was God. Which is only a crime if you're not God. And he, he committed no crime. He lived a perfect life. And just as he predicted, he died. Just as he predicted, he rose from the dead. And he lived such a perfect life that when even his own disciples said, we just really want to see God. We want to see the Father. He said to them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God's like? I'm right before you. Amazing. Now, what was hard for Naaman and what's hard for us is that we want to think that God owes us something. Or we want to put God in our debt. You know, a lot of people go to church for that reason. A lot of people serve in churches for that reason. Let's put God in our debt. We'll do all these good things and God will go, okay, you're a pretty good guy. I'll bless you now. And God will be a debtor to no one. He owes no one anything. And what Elijah is obviously doing is wanting to squeeze the pride out of Naaman. Wanting to expose his need to humble himself. So he's ticked off. He says, forget this, I, I want to go. In fact, he names two rivers in Damascus that are named, uh, their, their, their names mean stony and fast flowing. Well, if you know anything about the Jordan River, I've actually seen it. It's a muddy, not a very attractive river. It really isn't. Most, a lot of the places, it's just kind of muddy and, and kind of weedy, and it's not the kind of place where you really want to wash unless you have to. But these rivers are described as beautiful, flowing rivers, clean crystal water. And he's going, man, if it's a matter of just getting washed, why don't I just go do it there? But it wasn't just a matter of that. He's thinking his resources were more. But of course, his servant stopped him. Verse 13 says, his servants came to him, spoke to him, my father, which is a very rare thing to, uh, for a servant to say to a master. Obviously, they really cared for him. They're thinking, look, we care for you, listen. He says, look, if the prophet would have told you to do something great, you would have done it. If you would have said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to slay a thousand of the enemies of Israel and bring back their carcasses. He would have said, I'm a man of valor, I could do that. And he would have done it. But he tells him to do something very simple. And so he says, look, if he tells you to do something very simple, how much more should you be willing to do that? Again, he's calling him to humble himself. Now, he, here's the reality. One of the things that Naaman had a problem with was that it just seemed too simple. Can it really be that simple, dipping seven times in a river and then I'll be clean, I'll be finally healed of something that nobody else seems to have a cure for? Can it really be that simple? See, see guys, one of the things that we have a problem with, especially in, our, in, in an age of high technology, in an age of, of human progress, we tend to think complicated means right. And so what happens, and, and most of you guys, or not most of you, but many of you guys here are involved in the sciences, whether you have a scientific background, you're a scientific job. Tell me if this isn't true. You, you come up with really big words that nobody can say but you. Why? Because complicated sounds intelligent. Because the thing is, we're trying to say, okay, how can we get four ideas into this word, and then, it's, then we can remember that, that those four ideas into this one word, and, 
And it, 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 we think complicated means we've really done something well. And we think the simple answer sometimes is difficult. Well, sometimes the simple answer makes the most sense. In fact, it's interesting because, again, the Apostle Paul talking to believers in the Corinthian church, he says to them, he's worried that they're trying to make things too complicated. These were Greeks who were quite bright, want to make things complicated. And he says in, in 2 Corinthians eleven three, but I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. You know, the reason, one of the reasons I remain a follower of Jesus, and this is not why I became a follower of Jesus, but one of the reasons I remain a follower of Jesus, is because the more I look at the world, the more I look at the brokenness that's in the world and the brokenness that's in me, the more I realize there is no better alternative than the simple truth that God became a man, died for me, rose from the dead, and is going to fix everything in the future. You might go, oh, that's just too simple. Come on, that's pie in the sky. Well, there's historical reasons to believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even, even non-Christian historians back up some of those claims. All the evidence that we have, there's far, far more evidence to, for, for the trustworthiness of the New Testament than any work of antiquity. By far, multiple more. So could it really be that simple? Yeah, it is. See, we would rather God make it complicated for us. Okay, here's the thing. If you do this, 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 and this, all these rules and regulations, and sometimes people would think that's what it is. Sometimes people think what turns them off about church and about God is, I'm going to have to do all these things. And if I have to do all these things, they think, forget it, it's too hard. It is too hard. It's not about what we do. It's about what He does for us and in us and through us. Now, Interesting because he, he needs to wash. And this is, this is why I picked this text today because it's, a, it's a, a reminder of what baptism is about. Because here's the reality. The Bible talks about our salvation, our need to be made right with God. And the thing that keeps us being right with God is our sin. And that sin can't just be kind of outweighed by good deeds that doesn't work that way. So what has to happen is somehow that has to be removed. It has to be washed away from us. And so the Bible uses that kind of language to describe how God saves us. Listen to this. Again, the Apostle Paul in the book of Titus says this, For we ourselves were once also foolish, talking about us as believers, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God our God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which, he have, which we have done, but according to his mercies, he saved us. Through, notice, the washing of regeneration, that's new life, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out abundantly. Why and how? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Washing describes the process that God uses to save us. Jesus' blood is what pays the price for us to be washed clean. The Spirit of God is, is who works in us supernaturally to give us new life. Yeah, we still have an old brokenness, but we also have a new nature that competes against that old brokenness, and we begin to change from the inside out. That's the miracle of salvation. It's the, that's the message of the gospel. You can change. You can be cleansed and forgiven. There is a cure for leprosy. Now, being clear about baptism, the Bible doesn't teach that baptism washes away our sin. 
The Bible doesn't teach that baptism cleanses us, but it teaches that we've, it's a picture that we've received that cleansing. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21. And the water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from the body, but as a response to God from, notice, a clean conscience. Baptism is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, if Jesus isn't alive, getting baptized means nothing. If you don't believe it, if your heart hasn't been cleansed before God because you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, it doesn't do anything for you. But if you do believe those things and you are baptized, it's how you know that God's actually saved you. It's assurance that, yes, I believe God and I'm responding to God in this way. That's what baptism is. It's acknowledging that God has already washed me clean. Now, going back to Naaman, we're almost done. So Naaman has this experience in verse 14. He goes and he dips seven times. And I gotta imagine that as he's doing this, he's probably thinking, I'm an idiot. And I wonder, too, if some of his servants were like (laughs) laughing as he's doing it, you know? What is he doing? But he does it. You know, I can imagine he dips once and he comes back, dips twice and he comes back. This is stupid. Dips three times and there's mud in his ear. Oh, what am I doing this for? He does it those seven times. And when he comes up the seventh time, the Bible describes that what happens to him is not just that the skin disease goes away, listen, but his flesh is transformed like a baby's. I love baby skin. (laughs) I have to say, I have five kids, and we have five kids because we love, one of the reasons because we love babies. And when I get a baby, I'm just warning you, if you have babies and you bring them around, if I get a baby, I'm just going to, ooh, just want to just nibble on her cheeks, you know? <laughs> There's something about baby flesh that's just like, oh, it's just, it's just so pristine and soft and perfect. So you can imagine, it wasn't just like all these things are starting to fade. Oh, look, I think they're getting better with each dip. You're talking about something supernatural where his flesh was changed, and he's blown away, not just because something's changed in him, because he knows who did it. And that's why he says, listen, this is why he says this. He says to, uh, he finds Elijah, and he, or Elisha, and he says, he returned the man of God, and with all his aids, and he came and stood before him, and he said, indeed, now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. I don't care what location they claim to have. I don't care if they're in the mountains and they say he's the God of the mountains. I don't care if they're near the sea and they say he's the God of the sea. I don't care where they are. There is no God but the God of Israel because no one could do what he did in me. And so out of gratitude, he tries to offer a gift. Now, actually, before I say that, let me make something really clear. That when we're talking about this healing from God, the salvation that God brings it's, it's obviously happening in Naaman's life that it's better than he expected. It's more than he thought it was going to be. You know, it's important for us to understand that what we're talking about here with salvation, why the people that are going to be baptized today are getting baptized is not just because they think, okay, I want to join a church. It's because they've realized that Jesus is better than even they heard They've realized that what he's done is, is, is more amazing. Think about the fact that his flesh was like the flesh of a little child. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you, who, whoever does not receive the kingdom as a little child will by no means enter it. There needs to be a, a radical change. There needs to be a complete dependence that a child has on a parent that God wants to bring to us. 
And when we realize how good he is, we realize how bad we are, but we also realize how we have to trust him. And the more we trust, the more we realize we can trust him. Just like a child does to its father. But also, it's interesting, Jesus refers to this story in Luke chapter 4. And, he's re- and in that context, in Luke 4, he's rebuking the religious people of his day because they don't want to believe he's the Messiah when he so obviously is, by the miracles he does, by the teachings he brings. And so they think they're, they're right with God just because they're physically born into Israel. And he says, you know, there are many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. See, not only is it better in its results, but God is better in his reach. Think about this. Naaman is the enemy of God's people. He's brought some of his, God's people, this little servant girl, and made her a slave. He, he was probably responsible for the death of many Israelites, and yet the God of Israel is willing to save him. See, when Jesus says we need to love our enemies, he says that because he did it first. God loves his enemies. So you could be here today going, God's a a joke. I don't want nothing to do with him. And he still loves you and says, look, I've died for you. And you need to think twice (laughs) because this God who is your enemy, I mean, you can think about who your enemies are. I remember uh, when I used to do youth work in the States, I was working with the younger kids, like 11 to 14-year-olds. And there was a kid who was a bit of a punk. He was kind of off the street and he was at the youth and he was mouthing off and I said, okay, buddy, that's enough. You need to chill out. He's like, come on, what? I'm like, Really? Do you really want me to be your enemy? You're, you're five foot tall. I could squish you like a cockroach. You really want that to happen. And it was, it was ridiculous. And I think sometimes that's how God looks at us. We look at God, I don't need God. Who's God? Really? Are you really going to talk to God like that? You see, we are enemies of God before we come to Christ. And God says there's two choices. Either you can meet me as my enemy and face the consequence, or you can take the conditions of peace that I've offered you and be my friend and my child. I've died so that you can have that. I've sent my son as a sacrifice so you can have that. That's what I mean by it's better than we expect. I don't care how much you've hated God. God can save you. God wants to forgive you. Now, he wants to offer uh, Elisha a gift, and Elisha refuses to take it because Obviously, Elisha doesn't want Naaman to think that he has anything to do with this. It wasn't his power at all. It wasn't him. It was God who did it for him. So he won't take a gift. He won't won't let him think that. But also, it's interesting because we see that he recognizes, look, there's no other God. And what he says in verse 17, what Naaman says is, look, can I take two mules of, of dirt with me? so that when I go, I can build an altar and worship there. Now, remember, he still has that mindset of gods are are forced on a locality. So he's thinking, okay, this God came from Israel, therefore he might be the only God on earth, but I better take some Israel dirt with me so I can worship him there. And to me, what's kind of cool about this is is the fact that um, even though he has this kind of immature and wrong view of what God is like, that Elisha is patient with him. And this is how God is with us. God doesn't say, okay, be perfect from now on. Man, if that was the case, none of us would be Jesus followers. He says, listen, it's a work only I can do, and it's a work I'm going to start, and it's a work I promise to finish. But also what's interesting is is that that as he does this, he's recognizing there's going to be a challenge to it. He recognizes, listen, 
he recognizes that when he goes back to Syria, that his boss is going to go in and he's going to worship the false god. And as the commander of the army, he's kind of the bodyguard. He's supposed to go in there with him. And when that, that king of Syria bows down to the, the god of Syria, he's going to say, hey, you got to bow. And he knows, well, politically, if I don't bow, it's not just that I'm going to die. I'm going to lose all this influence. It's gonna, this would go really wrong. And so he's saying, man, I hope God forgives me when I'm stuck in this position. Now, this illustrates something, too, and this is really important, especially if any of you are here today considering the Christian message or considering who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. You need to know this, okay, that when God saves us, it puts us into conflict with our old lives. It's interesting, we, we get this picture that, that, that uh, Naaman knows that there's nothing to fear of that God. In fact, the, the name Rimon is, is probably a, a, a twisting of the real name of the God of Syria, which would have been Ramon. And Ramon means like the thundering one. Rimon means pomegranate. It's like a play, it's a play on word, you know. It'd be like someone teasing us as Christians and saying, oh, you worship Jesus, right? And they're teasing with the name because it sounds less you know, ominous or authoritative. So he's blaspheming his old God, which shows that his heart's really changed. But there is this reality there's going to be a conflict. And guys, listen, because of that conflict, that's why, that's why God wants us to be confident in who he is. That's why God wants us to be confident that this work that he does is something that only he can do. Let me close with this verse. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says, but as many as received Jesus... To them, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, notice, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, they weren't born just humanly of blood. They weren't born of the will of the flesh like they worked for it. They, they, they earned it by their natural power. That's the flesh means. Nor of the will of man. It wasn't even just simply a choice they made, but of God. Jesus said we must be born again. And we can't make ourselves born again. Only God can do that for us. But God will do it for anyone who is willing to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior.